Welcome to episode 21 of the Anxious Poets podcast. I am Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Moon Madness It does not take Armstrong's small step for a man or his giant leap to apprehend the moon. It takes 28 days of waxing and waning, of tides and menstrual blood. Whoever said that colonising was the way to gain knowledge of a thing? 28 dreaming nights where every part of the dream is you. After all, there is only so much to be learned from the evenness of sunlight Wolves howl at the moon. Humans become wolves and bite each other when they have been tamed too long. The lunatic was the original moonwalker, wild enough to rage and weep in the sleepiness of night. But I say we are mad to think of life as a line of progress and that poles are to be shunned in favour of a false equator. Take a month of yourself and speak it out loud on the new moon in a sacred circle and I promise you that the secreted self that lurks in the dark will emerge with good intent. Then as she waxes the unearthly silver of the rising moon will illustrate so much more of you than daylight can reveal. Take a month of yourself and speak it out loud on the new moon in a sacred circle and I promise you that the secreted self that lurks in the dark will emerge with good intent. Then, as she waxes, the unearthly silver of the rising moon will illustrate so much more of you than daylight can reveal. In this podcast, I want to explore kindness and the shadow. And the poem that you've just heard I wrote in about 2010 and it pertains to the shadow. It's nice to be back 
on this podcast in this what feels like a one-sided conversation but I know it's not because of the feedback I get from people who listen. The poem comes from an experience. In 2002 I went to New Mexico to do a men's rites of passage led by a Franciscan priest called Father Richard Rohr. It was a powerful experience. A lot of it is um, non-verbal. There are, it's a week-long experience and there are rituals in the mornings that are like sort of dramas, I suppose, that the participants themselves are schooled in and then deliver each morning. I was in one of them. Uh, they were designed by a fantastic man called Stephen Gamble, um, who had a background in art and drama, but I think they came right out of his unconscious. And they deal with the themes of the day, which are things like separation, the traditional themes of male initiation, separation, um, grief and death, mortality and how to enter into the next phase of your life. And I witnessed the first one of these. It was very powerful to do with um, the breaking of a mirror and blood and, and, and death, I suppose. And it had a huge visual and, and sensational effect on me. And then after each of these things, you, you're given a lot of space and silence. And I'd gone out into the um, in, into the uh, canyon, into this sandy gulch. I love that word, gulch. And I was sitting there and I had this sense of being addressed. I think I'd probably call it God. People might call it something else, my unconscious. I don't, I don't really care. And this voice said to me, good, I'm glad I've got you, finally got you out here. Um, how would it be if you were to raise your children, tend your garden, and then you died? And two parts of my psyche responded one which I was very familiar with, having trained for the priesthood and all of that, although I I, I sort of barreled out of that. Um, but the compliant, the, the pious part of me, the part that wanted to please, said, yes, oh yes, that, yeah, not really understanding what I've been told. The other part of me that had probably been the part that made me leave training for the priesthood and the more rebellious part was like, well, fuck off. Um, I, that is not what I wanted to hear. What about recognition and, you know, my calling in the world and making a mark and, 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 and you know, being the person that I think I should be? And... Whatever part of me spoke, the response was what I called a thunderous silence. 
and that silence continued for the whole rites of passage and we actually you 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 get to spend a whole day this is in a place called ghost ranch where georgia o'keefe painted um it's actually the 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 backdrop of a film called city slickers um but it's it's just beautiful completely different to the uk it's um a high desert no humidity very cold at night very warm in the daytime and um and all these mesas that you see in in if you're as old as i am you used to see them in westerns um and and the the native americans would appear from from behind them and all that sort of stuff and and it's it's spectacular and I, you, we were out there for quite a few hours on our own and this silence persisted and I began to interpret the silence as if you can't get this that your life ultimately is about raising your family you know the three children that you've brought into this world but but that that fatherly parental uh guardianship the the custodianship the the ability to care and to to husbandry um but also then the ability to let go so that others can flourish to tend your garden the ability to be connected to the green world the green fuse that drives the flower that drives my green age as dylan thomas says to to be nurtured and to nurture the green world and you're literally the garden that you live where you live uh, and if you can't learn how to die that's that letting go part you'll never find out who you are you'll never be happy and I, I've wrestled with that. I still wrestle with it. It's still a huge challenge. But as you can hear, the rites of passage had a profound effect on me. And I came back to the UK full of it, full, <laughs> full of that whole thing. This is how, this is how I'm going to make my mark. This is how I'm going to be. I'll be Richard Rohr in England, you know, and I'll get lots of men onto these rites of passage and. You know, this is, you know, this will be a vehicle for my greatness. And um, so I decided that I'd lay on these um, sessions at the local Catholic cathedral on masculine spirituality and that men would flock to this and how great it would be and how wonderful I would be doing it. And I set up three Saturdays in Lent and, you know, put I sent things to every parish priest and I posted everywhere. And, and the, first, the first session dawned and I went with great in anticipation and 12 men turned up. And I was really disappointed, really disappointed because I wanted to be Richard Roy. You know, I wanted 300 guys you know and and to listen to my great wisdom that i'd learned about five weeks earlier and um <laughs> but that voice came again and said i did okay with 12 <laughs> um for those of you not from the christian tradition jesus had 12 disciples um and that seemed to have quite a profound effect 
given the spread of Christianity. Um, and it was almost like a sort of ironic comment, you know, how dare you not value these 12 guys that have had the guts to turn up. And after the three sessions, which went well, and we explored together and my ego was deflated. And um, I said, you know, I really like to have a group where we can explore some of this stuff. What do you think? And they said, yeah, let's have a session. Let's have a half a day on that. And then, then launch a little group, little men's circle. Okay. So unfortunately, me not knowing anything about rugby, called it for the day of the Rugby World Cup final when England won. So everyone turned up about an hour late, but but they were all on a massive high because England had won. So we were all in a very positive frame of mind. And they said they, the first thing that they didn't want was to be fixed or have anyone trying to fix them. They wanted to share without anyone advising them in other words a safe space and i discovered the way of counsel a book by frank zimmerman and Ginny coyle um some of you will be familiar with the way of counsel but you, you share in a circle with a sharing stick they wanted a fire they wanted it to be outside in nature and thankfully i've got a big space here so we decided to do it here um and they wanted it to have a, f a sort of ritual feel. And there were other things. And uh, so so we started this men's circle um, in 2003 and it lasted, whoa, till about 2015, I think, 2014. And it was sort of really, and oh, and, and we were looking, we wanted it to be monthly and we wanted it to be on a different night each month so that it didn't exclude people. You know, I've got this on a Thursday or I've got this on a Sunday. And um, someone said, oh, what's this this dot in the diary? And it was the new moon. In other words, actually, it's not the new moon, it's the no moon. There are three nights where there really isn't a moon in the sky. And some guy said, well, isn't the full moon meant to be the height of feminine energy? Maybe this dark moment will be a time of, of masculine introversion that we can go into ourselves, okay. And it was a really powerful experience. Right from the start, men, we made a fire um, and we would put stones in it, a bit like a sweat lodge. And then just over time, this ridiculous ritual developed where the guys would get a pitchfork and we'd take the stones into our <laughs> red hot stones into a wooden shed. Not health and safety, but anyway, it worked. And and we'd put them in a big flower, a big pot, and then we'd pour water on them, a bit of incense and then some water. And it just created, a, and everyone would take a stone. So it was a sort of communal thing. And it... it the moment the sharing circle started, we'd have two rounds and there was no theme. People, and this guy just launched into something you knew he'd really not told anybody else. And it was vulnerable and intimate and edgy. And and so this poem, Moon Madness, came out of that experience. Um, 
It does not take Armstrong's small step for a man or his giant leap to apprehend the moon. In other words, it's not about, you know, being too small or, or being too inflated. None of those things apprehend the moon. It takes 28 days of waxing and waning of tides of menstrual blood. The 28 days matches the feminine cycle. And, and once we started meeting, I started becoming far more aware of the passage of the moon and how that seemed to affect everything. Um, <clears throat> to, to the point where I noticed the women in my house around the full moon were far more sort of switched on and, and alive than at other points in the month. Um, whoever said that colonising was the way to gain knowledge of a thing, uh, that idea that we had to go to the moon, and it's not about that masculine, and I'm being caricature here, but there is sometimes a male thing that we have to dominate something to know what it's about. This wasn't about that. 28 days of dreaming nights where every part of the dream is you. Yes, every part of the dream is you. That's the Jungian understanding of dreams. After all, there's only so much to be learned from the evenness of sunlight. Wolves howl at the moon. Humans become wolves and bite each other when they've been tamed too long. We realised when you lose touch with the dark, with the shadow, what Jung called the shadow, with those parts of yourself that you relegate because they're uncomfortable or difficult or don't fit with the profile you want to show to the world, the persona, Jung called it, when, when you, which we all do, everyone does this, if, if you allow that to become too embedded without paying any attention to it, it will bite you things will emerge from that part of you that you didn't expect. And Christianity is terrible for this because it's meant to be a religion of light and everybody's trying to be holy and, and trying to be um, good and present goodness. It does not surprise me that child abuse scandals, that, that, that priests doing all kinds of desperate things that's not surprising because there's not enough attention to the dark. It's just obvious. The lunatic was the original moonwalker, wild enough to rage and weep in the sleepiness of night, wild enough to look at their own darkness. But as I say, but I say, we are mad to think of life as a line of progress and that poles are to be shunned in favour of a false equator. Take a month of yourself and speak it out loud on the new moon in a sacred circle. That's what we did. And I promise you that the secreted self that lurks in the dark will emerge with good intent. I was still in that phase, I think, when I thought even writing poetry I had to be a teacher of some kind. So this is in a quite a authoritative voice, which I probably still believe but might be a bit more hesitant then as she waxes the unearthly silver of the rising moon will illustrate so much more of you than daylight can reveal and and that's been true for me in ways that i didn't expect 
and as this po- podcast is about, you know, it's the Anxious Poets podcast. It's about anxiety and vulnerability, mental health. You know, not long after the group began to end and I'd done a lot of this sort of shadow work, I had a real eruption of the unconscious in my anxiety breakdown. And it it unseated. I suppose part of the reason that I find that style that I wrote in a bit unnerving is because what happened when my anxiety really hit me was that I was in what they call liminal space, which we'd done a lot of work on in the men's stuff. But real liminal space, you really don't know which way is up. And, you know, you don't know whether you're in the poles or the equator. It's just unbelievably disorientating and painful. And, 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 you know, being mentally ill is is really painful just in the way of having flu or you know um having a stomach ulcer having migraines you feel terrible and and those of you who suffer you know don't need me to tell you and it's a different way of feeling ill but you just feel totally not yourself and out of sorts but it did really viscerally start to introduce me to my shadow. And this is a, a piece <clears throat> from a night sea journey that I wrote coming out of that uh, that breakdown and that eruption of anxiety and, and instability, mental instability that you know, I, I still suffer from at times. It's called This Thing of Darkness, I Acknowledge Mine, which is Prospero speaking about Caliban right at the end of the play, The Tempest, which is one of my favourite plays, Shakespeare plays. And I miss this quite often. I saw it a few times. He, he Everything has been sorted. Prospero has, Prospero has been... Uh, reunited with his brother because he, he's exiled on this enchanted island by his brother he's usurped uh, and everything is forgiven um, what is it he says there's that great soliloquy our revels now are ended these are actors as I foretold you were all spirits and are melted into air into thin air and like the baseless fabric of this vision the cloud-capped towers the gorgeous palaces the solemn temples the great globe itself yea and all that which it inherits shall dissolve and like this insubstantial pageant faded leave not a rack behind we are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep. That's as he's coming to the end of the play and everything is is sorted. Except Caliban. 
Caliban is like a dream creature. He's the son of Sycorax, a witch, and he knows all the secrets of the island and Prospero, in in a, a, a nasty way, has plundered Caliban for all his secrets and then turned him into his servant. And because Caliban falls for Miranda, Prospero's daughter, he and he doesn't want him anywhere near her, he, he assaults him with magic that pinches his skin and, and, and he tortures Caliban. But right at the end, he just has that line, this thing of darkness, referring to Caliban, I acknowledge mine. And I heard that and I thought, well, that's, that's, that's genius. Shakespeare was a genius. This thing that I have exiled, that I have tortured, that I have despised and hated, that I that wanted to do heinous things, that is monstrous, I now acknowledge mine. It's me. There is a part of me like that. Here's the poem. This thing of darkness I acknowledge mine. The foxes barked again last night, loud and insistent out in the garden. The noise wakened me. At first I thought I'd heard a human voice, like a child whelping in the black grass. I was wretched to stir, as I had been fighting like a wrestler with insomnia, which gallingly seems to guarantee its victory. Once I began to exit my torpor and enter that strange place between sleep and waking, the sound entered the open window. The shape of it defined the room. I wondered where the skulk was, the vixen, the dog and the cubs. But then their den was under my pillow as I slipped back again under the sheets of sleep. The lank shadows were a gathering garden's den, lowering over me and cowering me fetal. Then there were figures behind the door and down in the cellar, collecting with intent their shape and size, pooling into one darkness. An animated subjugation, gianted and jointed, joined umbilically to my waking child. I fear this one more than any other. He lags my steps, now close, then elastically far away, but waiting for that ping-back slingshot return, like now, in this before dawn, dawn, cold quietness. Wiping him out of waking life has only served to render his power out of reach to me. Wiping him out of waking life has only served to render his power out of reach to me. But now, as the sun aches over the tree line, this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. But now, as the sun aches over the tree line, this thing of darkness, I acknowledge mine. So this is where the kindness element of this podcast, the shadows and kindness, comes in Um so that, that poem starts with that amazing um, thing of the foxes barking in my garden. I, if you've ever heard foxes, it's not barking. It sounds like children screaming. It's the most unearthly, 
and quite terrifying sound. Um, and in the poem, I sort of imagine that they, the, apart from calling it a den, they also call where foxes live a skulk, and that somehow this had gone under my pillow. And, and that's where the poem turns toward the inner world, and the lank shadows were gathering, lowering and carrying me fetal. There were figures behind the door and down in the cellar. I had a dream um, that I was going down into the basement of our house here in Sheffield. And I got to the cellar and there was a white door and I knew there was something really awful behind it or I, that was what I sensed. And, you know, being a good Catholic, I'd got my crucifix and my holy water and I was, you know, I'm going to stop whatever comes out of that door. It's evil. And I talked to my therapist about the dream and she said, oh, wow, we're going to have to see what's behind that door. <laughs> and I was wide-eyed. I was like, that's not what I want to do. What I want to do is bolt it, shut it, put wood across it and never go there again. And she was saying, no, the, you know, this is your shadow. This is the darker parts of yourself that you need to confront. And so, uh, as I say, uh, there were figures behind the door and down in the cellar collecting with intent their shape and size pooling into one darkness and animated subjugation gianted and jointed joined umbilically to my waking child I fear this one more than any other he lags my steps now close then elastically far away but waiting for that pingback slingshot return so I realised that there was this part of me that I had to I had to conceive of and I went down to the summer exhibition with a friend of mine Kate uh, in in uh, the Royal Academy and and it collects art from all its members and people in the public and puts them up and there was this amazing twice life-size twice human size sculpture of a, a dark figure lowering with its arms up above its head lowering over something and it was all made of bin bags I think it was something to do with the environment and it was all made of black bin bags that were sort of hanging off its arms and everything and I looked up at it and I thought wow I know that figure that's it that's what's behind the door good god that's what's behind the door and I went up I'd had my breakdown by then as you can hear from that poem and I was very anxious at times and the thought of confronting this was terrifying on one level but I'm I also have a courageous part of me that thinks well in for a penny you, you need to you need to be honest my therapist once said to me God, you are really brave in your honesty I don't know whether that's true but I said to her, it's not bravery, it's 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 all or nothing. If I don't do this, then I'm going to, am I ever going to get better? Am I ever going to feel better? And so um, 
I went up to help out with the rites of passage. I, I, I had been leading them, and that was part of what caused my breakdown. I was taking on too much. So someone else was leading, and I went up just to help out. And one evening, I thought, right, this is the place to do it, because there's a lovely big wood next to where we did it. And my mum left me an ebony head of a of a African man that she got in Sierra Leone when she lived there. And I'd taken this up with me because I had an idea of doing this thing. And I went out at dusk into this wood and I put it on a, on a tree stump, this head that was sort of the representative of this big black giant figure. And I sat there and my therapist had said to me, you need to allow this, this dark shadow to name you. And so I put the figure as the dust came down and in my imagination conjured this figure and I said, okay, who am I? And the, the figure looked at me in my imagination and said, you're dream boy. And I said, and you're shadow man. And I just had it, had it. I knew that there was a veracity to this. And I worked with it. And this is the story I wrote based on that work. Dream boy and shadow man. Once upon a time, some 50 years ago, in the dark clearing of a young boy's interior forest, two figures emerged that would live within him for the rest of his life. One would remain for many years mainly in that forest, and the other, though he boasted he had made many journeys along the winding and labyrinthine forest paths, remained scared of the darkness between the trees. It took three years past his half-century tally of years, for the man to find the name and character of those two figures, and only then on account of his absolute desperation. He had to enter the interior forest by mirroring its darkness in a real forest. In the gloaming of a Scottish evening, he sat on a log with a dark ebony carved man's head that his mother had brought back from Sierra Leone, perched opposite him on a wooden stump. In that twilight place where inner and outer meet, these two gave each other names. You are dream boy, said the dark one, and you are shadow man, said the fair one. As the man stood in the twilight, he sensed the two figures moving in and out of his consciousness, and that they had always been present, even when he was unaware of them. Dream boy was bright-eyed, youthful and blonde-haired, always focused on the horizon, desperate for new stories, stories of other lands, speaking animals, cloak-clad wizards, especially stories that came to him in the dark of winter and carried him away from the humdrum. He inherited this from his book-reading parents, especially his mother, who read to him when he was little. The dream boy had accompanied him into adulthood and was always keen on new starts, tougher tasks and capturing the limelight. Dream boy revelled in the esteem of others and stressed the need for calm and a collected approach to everything. 
Though the man's father had died when he was a boy, the cathartic darkness of grief had never been appealing to Dream Boy. Instead, he looked for the next story to escape into, the next adventure, the next horizon to aim for. Shadow Man was of a different character altogether. He appeared for many years only in the man's dreams. Father Christmas in his sleep realms became dark and malevolent, a figure to flee from. Huge, gloomy animals stalked him, great giants that lowered over him. The giant haystack from ITV's Saturday Wrestling, an alpha male gorilla called Guy from the London Zoo of his childhood, escaped and rampaging. Sometimes Shadow Man took over in his dreams, put a sword in his hand, and they rampaged through Sheffield Town Centre, up the escalator of the hole in the road, beheading enemies. And recently, in a recurring dream of the basement of his house, behind a white door, a screaming demon. But never before had he seen the outline of Shadow Man in waking life. He had grown during all those years in the forest. He was now over seven feet tall, with blurred edges. Flying buttresses of black rags came off his limbs, and his features were indistinct, as they were so jet black. But what was discernible was a deep, unilluminated sadness. The other factor, and this was new to the man, was that there existed between Shadow Man and Dream Boy a cord, umbilical and highly elastic. This meant that where one went, the other would inevitably follow. As the man had grown to maturity, Dream Boy grew up too, in his own way, though he retained all that youthful verve and desire to be seen as good and wise and competent, an exemplar to be followed. And the man acted on this part oblivious of Shadow Man, and he was ashamed if any of the forest darkness leaked out into the waking world and disowned it as quickly as possible, finding a way to blame it on others. He numbed himself to any feelings that spoke of the stretching sensation that the umbilical and elastic connection engendered in him. He was renowned for his calm and placid demeanour, he was only ever fleetingly aware of his discomforts and ambiguities, his angsts and his fears. And because they did not fit his carefully curated persona, he allowed them to pass, with all their toxicity, down the cord and into shadow man, like intravenous perdition in liquid form. The forest, as a consequence, became darker and darker and more and more alarming. Though it was becoming darker and more frightening, Shadow Man still preferred to dwell in the interior forest, and the man and his dream boy did not even suspect the presence of a realm so vast and so dark. The strain on the cord was growing year by year, month by month, day by day. In the dream world, Shadow Man was forced more and more to make his presence felt, the man would wake up shouting his imprecations at the white and sepulchre-like door in his basement, holding crucifixes up to the aperture through which he thought some ferocious demonic enemy was about to storm. Even this did not persuade the man and his dream boy to investigate the interior forest. 
So Shadow Man did what any decent creature of the unconscious world would. He allowed the accumulated tension from all those years to launch himself into the conscious life of the man and to make himself known in the waking world. His presence took the form of an overwhelming and undeniable sense of utter dread. It appeared one morning and the man was totally unmanned by it. The dream boy, clinging to whatever apron strings or crumb of comfort was available, the rational part of the man, and he was quite intelligent, constantly scanned himself for the cause of this awful sensation. He attributed it to, he attributed it to all manner of things, some illness or worse. He even began to suspect his own sanity. Shadow Man was becoming bold as he realised that his presence was finally having an effect. The man began asking himself some searching questions and even sought out a healer who interrogated him relentlessly and told him this was a golden opportunity to step into the fullness of his life. She made him record his dreams and recount them to her. And of course, as any healer, healer worth her salt would do, she immediately discerned the footprints of an unfriended shadow in his life. She was particularly fascinated by the basement door and what lay behind it, and so she sent him into the forest in Scotland that reflected his interior forest, and here he saw clearly, and for the first time, Shadow Man and Dream Boy. She intuited that behind that sepulchre-like door was not a demon, but a lost shadow. The first meeting with Shadow Man in Waking Life caused an intense feeling of sadness in the man's heart. He realised that his blind adherence to Dream Boy had meant that this poor figure standing before him was draped in the funereal shrouds of all his own banished darkness, the darkness that Dream Boy had no time for or interest in. He sensed, in fact, that right now Dream Boy was hiding behind him clinging rigidly to his coattails. The man wept openly at the callousness of his actions. He stared up at the colossal figure and found to his surprise that the giant too was weeping. Dream Boy peered around the man's torso and timidly stepped towards the giant. The man handed him a cloth from out of his pocket and Dream Boy reached up toward the immense dark face leaning down towards him and began to wipe away tear after tear after tear. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. This is where the podcast turns towards the notion of kindness. In that story, <clears throat> at the end, that overwhelming sadness that brings together Dream Boy and Shadow Man in a, a moment of tenderness, and it lures the scared Dream Boy out of his um, obsession with the evenness of sunlight, and it allows... Shadow Man 
to express all that pent-up toxicity that he has been heir to because of the man's inability to face up to it. And it's kindness that mediates that experience. And that's what I found in myself, that kindness, that incredibly underrated emotion is such a curative on many of these podcasts I've talked about the idea of curatives in other words not things that cure our mental health issues completely many of us carry them all our lives but that have an ameliorating um, a healing a therapeutic a gentle generous effect and kindness for me is definitely one of those. To be kind is such a courageous thing to do. In my life, the people who've been kind to me are the ones that probably, as I've got older, stand out most in my memory. When I was training for the priesthood, I lived in Whitechapel in a presbytery um, of a church that's a, a place where priests live and it was run by the Marist fathers they were um, a bit like the Jesuits dedicated to the um, the Virgin Mary and and their vocation I remember um, was to be hidden and unknown like Mary was you don't hear much of Mary in the Bible and whatever anybody makes of all the stuff about her being ever virgin and what that says about femininity and all that sort of stuff. There is an incredibly powerful presence in Mary. Um, she represents some aspects of the feminine. Um, and one of them is this incredible kindness. And the, the, the Marists, not all of them, but there was one particular priest who stands out in my memory. He was called Father Leo McIver. He was from Blackburn, had a Blackburn accent. And he, God, he must have been in his late 60s, early 70s when, when I was there. Um, and he was universally loved in the parish. Um, he was semi-retired. I think he'd been a teacher and he loved sport, he loved football, and I think he'd been a footballer, uh, not professional, but he played. And Leo was infinitely patient. And I remember where we were in Whitechapel, you had a lot of homeless people, a lot of people with desperate mental health issues, and they would find their way to our door on a regular basis. And Leo often was the person who would answer the door and show massive kindness and there was this woman an Irish woman who was a sort of what we would have called then a bag lady and she would turn up and he would always invite her in there was a little parlor and he'd always invite her in and he would spend hours listening to her and I was amazed and one day I tried to do the same I invited her in and she sat there and I couldn't understand a word that she said. 
and I nodded and, and in the end I, I lost patience and thought I've got to go and do my my studying for the priesthood and this is not helping um, and I sort of ushered her out a couple of days later I bumped into Leo in the corridor and I said that lady I, I, I gave her a cup of tea and everything but I couldn't understand a word she said and he smiled and he looked at me and he said no I can't either <laughs> <laughs> and I just walked off and, and I, I was like, oh my God, he spent hours listening to someone he doesn't understand. But it wasn't whether he understood her or not, because at a deeper level, the level that kindness speaks on, he completely understood her. She needed company. She needed someone to respect and listen to her and, and help her on her way. And I was bowled over. And... Some years later, when I'd left training for the priesthood, left the idea of being a priest, we bumped into him. We were having a scan at the Whitechapel Royal London Hospital, and we were in a real state of um, of worry. It was when Lara was was uh, on the way, and it was very, very worrying. And we bumped into him, standing there in one of those awful NHS gowns, that show your backside off, uh, and he was having an he was having angioplasty, and he was very vulnerable looking. I remember thinking, "Wow, you know how different he looked, this frail old man." But he immediately was, uh, you know, so interested in us and what was happening for us, and that he would pray for us. And you know, I said, "I'll pray for you," and he he shook my hand and he said. Thank you, Adrian. That means a lot to me. And and when I left, living there, he wrote the most amazing message to me in a card. And I realised he'd really listened to me. And he was. it was his kindness that opened his ears to what was going on and opened his heart and his mind and his eyes. So being kind to ourselves, being kind... Not in a sort of mawkish, uh, saccharine, sentimental way. Leo's kindness was robust. It was, uh, it was, in his character, as a sporty bloke from Blackburn. Um, it was entirely real, and he'd obviously cultivated that, and 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 more to the point. I suspect, had had it expressed to him. You you often can only mirror something that you've experienced, and he must have experienced some deep kindness somewhere. And that was partly, he prayed a lot. Now, I, I, you know, I don't really know what prayer is a lot of the time. Um, and, and, you know, many of us don't believe in our God out there. But I think the ability to be recollected to be still and contemplative and to and to when anxiety isn't ravaging you to allow that inner kindness to well up in you which we seem to have the capacity for within ourselves then whatever prayer is that might be it so I want to share a couple more pieces. 
about kindness and about uh, acceptance. And one of them is from a trip we went on with David White, my friend, who is uh, a poet who lives in America, but he's from um, Murfield in West Yorkshire. And I met him. He really encouraged me to, to learn the craft of writing and to keep at it. And I went on one of his, what he calls salon series, um, the salons in Paris being places where revolution was fermented. <laughs> I don't know how much revolution we fermented in a, a nice hotel in, um, in um, uh, the Cotswolds. But, um, but the, the, it certainly fermented a revolution in me. And um, he said, you should come on my Italy trip. <clears throat> and I, I, I was like, oh, really? He said, yeah, it's a great trip. And, and I'd said it was our wedding anniversary, 20th wedding anniversary. Oh, that's a great time to come, he said. Now, I don't know how much marketing that was, or how much he really... I think, he, yes, he did really want us to come. He knew it would be a great thing for us. And um, the cost was eye-watering. And, and we had saved up some money for double glazing and I said to Wilma this trip looks amazing what do you think and I think she could see that David and the work meant a lot to me and incredibly kindly and generously she said well okay worrying herself as an introvert what it would be like because there would be 30 people mainly from America um, going um, and she's an incredible introvert, and the, some of the natural predilection of Americans is to be extroverted, so she was worried about that. Um, anyway, we went, um, booked our flights, flew into Florence the night before, stayed in this incredible hotel Baglioni. When we woke up in the morning, because we got there late at night, there was... Um, a 360 degree view from the, the the restaurant of Florence and we were it was just extraordinary it was lovely and um, <laughs> we we walked around Florence in the morning and she was saying to me why can't we just stay here this would be a lovely way to celebrate our anniversary um, but no and we were to meet up in this car park above Florence and there were four white vans that we were going to be transported around in and a gaggle of of what looked like tourists when we first met them. Um, all very excited, all very jet-lagged, having flown from America and Australia and places like that. And I could see Wilma looking at me as if to say, this is going to be a nightmare. Why have you brought me? Um, anyway, we got to this incredible um, villa, which was situated in a vineyard and an olive grove and it was Tuscany it was just so picturesque and incredibly earthy and beautiful um, and she'd said to me I brought a whole load of books because I'm not going to be joining in with a lot of the stuff that you'll be doing I'll just sit in my room and read and hilariously she never read a book and actually I would be going to bed and she'd still be up talking to people and she made some brilliantly wonderful 
friends from America and uh, Australia, um, South Africa. It was it was an, an amazing trip, full of kindness, full of kindness. Um, there was a sort of it was harvest time in Tuscany, and the vineyards were all rich with grapes about to be harvested and and we didn't do anything complicated. We walked and we ate and we shared and David takes along with him two amazing guys called Owen and Moley brothers um Mihal is now called not Moley um O'Sullivan, and they sing like larks. And they can sing anything from rap to plain chant. And it's they just accompany David so perfectly. Um, and then there was a wonderful woman who cooked for us and another woman called Laurie DeMori who uh, introduced David to a lot of the places that we went. On this particular day, and you never knew where you were going, we, we learned not to ask. Just allow the day to unfold in front of you uh, with all the kindness that, Tuscany can offer and he said we're going to meet an extraordinary man today so we were walking along and and there'd been all this stuff about how fit you needed to be so we'd been practicing you know we'd been training been walking and in fact I think we were some of the fittest people on the on the trip and um, so we were walking on ahead with Laurie who'd walked the Camino and um, suddenly out of this sort of glade appeared this extraordinary looking man uh, in chef's whites and trousers, huge six foot odd, big guy. And he was holding a flagon of wine, one of those bottles with wicker uh, casings and glasses and beckoning. And I have to admit, I thought he was talking, looking at other people, not us. So I looked round for who he was actually talking to and then I realized it was us. And he was this guy called Dario, uh, a friend of Laurie's and David's. And he was from a town called Panzano, not far away. And when we went into the glade, there was the huge trestle tables with white cloths. And on it was all kinds of glorious food. Uh, and he invited us to eat and he was talking about Tuscany and its produce and its meats and its... You know, he, he was a proper old-style butcher, and apparently his grandfather and father had been butchers before him. And and he was extraordinary, and David recited this poem about marriage because he, he was with his fiancée. They were going to marry in this glade the week after. And so David recites this poem about marriage, and she translates it to Dario, and she's crying, and he's crying, and we start... You know, it's all incredibly meaningful and emotional. Um, and then he invited us back down to his shop. Uh, and I, it was like being in a film set. It was it was amazing. But it was all about kindness and generosity. And I wrote this piece. It's called Married Again. The bright Tuscan hills lay in chequered vineyards as the path spread before our feet. Walking into the 21st year of marriage, recalling to us, the Isle of First Consent. When ahead and unlooked for, a figure, aproned, approaching, beckoning and biblical, opening his strong earthen face and hands, overwhelming any doubt 
that we were called to the spreading bride white forest table. He, Dario, the local butcher, exuding unbridled invitation, like Jesus, fresh from the resurrection, drew our company from the path to a glade in which he was to marry in a week's time. Offering soft bread with timed lamb, pouring the Tuscan red clemency, our watery hopes made wine. Our hearts extending beyond the fences of what normally would hem in our life. And then he went before us into his own Galilee, Panzano, his shop a white-tiled grandfathered gift. In the corner an old statue with a bare man's chest, a butcher's apron and a great bull's head. Dario steps up onto his butcher's block atop the white counter's cliff. Dante's canto springs from him like an oratorio, all sweeping arms and passion. And the story, Francesca and Paolo's forbidden love, rich like strong meat, a weeping butcher in the second circle of hell. After, we stood amazed, dared by this man of earth, to enlarge the compass of our appreciation. Married again to soil and beast, soul and sorrow, dust and death, blood and life, knowing ourselves to be consummated. And this renewed marriage, more beguiling than the first, daring us to believe in the wonder of our own walking. And this renewed marriage, more beguiling than the first, daring us to believe in the wonder of our own walking. Daring us to believe in the wonder of our own walking. Extraordinary. It was an amazing day and for Wilma and I, we thought to ourselves, why, why don't we always feel like this? this? This heightened sense of meaning and magic. And it became a, a seminal watershed moment in our marriage and in our lives that, that it was possible, wherever you are, to enlarge the compass of your appreciation. What I didn't realize then, because this was before my breakdown, was that that includes the darker side of life. And the only way I have learned to enlarge the compass of my appreciation is kindness. Dario was kind. He was a large, powerful Italian man, a butcher, but he exuded a particular form of kindness, a particular incarnation of kindness. And that's what I've had to learn. And that's what I'm always learning. I'm not good at it, I'm not good at it at all. But because I've experienced it, I can express it, especially and importantly, 
and curatively to myself to be kind to myself um, and that's meant undoing a lot of the punitive rhythms that I, I inherited partly that whole thing of my mother and grandmother and, and the people who went through the war that you just get on with it you just get on with life you push yourself and I remember going on a retreat just before my mother died down to the St. Catherine's Foundation in London. I was about to start a master's in Christian spirituality. So I thought I'd have a week's retreat on my own. And on the first day, I was thinking, right, I've got six days. How? What will I do in them? And instead of thinking what would be kind to myself, I thought, right, what, what, how can I make a timetable? And because I was always influenced and loved monasticism, I developed an orarium uh, 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 structure for my hours. And it was getting up at half past six. It was meditation. It was morning prayer. It was uh, going for a run. It was, it was just one thing after another all through the day. It was exhausting. And it was only later when I looked back at that time and thought, Perhaps in one way it prepared me for the trauma of my mum dying. But it was just, no one was making me do it. I was making myself do it. You know, and, and I, I was tired. And then I got headaches and I realised it was I was drinking loads of tea and coffee to keep myself awake. And so I, I then decided to give up tea and coffee and went through withdrawal on that retreat, which was horrendous. Um, but, but I had this internal slave driver really pushing me into the Mitzrayim, as it says in the Passover, into the narrow place. And it was kindness. When my anxiety got really terrible, I had to learn to be kind to myself and kind to that shadow figure. When you find your shadow, it's not pleasant. It's really not pleasant. Some of the things that we keep in the shadow are the worst part, what we think, what we assume are the worst parts of ourselves. And Jung was really clear about that. In The Undiscovered Self, he says some amazing things. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets podcast. In this great little book, the undiscovered self that Jung wrote in 1957. He says this. Recognition of the shadow, on the other hand, leads to the modesty we need in order to acknowledge imperfection. And it is just this conscious recognition and consideration that are needed wherever a human relationship is to be established. A human relationship is not based on differentiation and perfection, for these only emphasise the differences or call forth the exact opposite. It is based rather on imperfection, on what is weak, helpless and in need of support, the very ground and motive of dependence. The perfect has no need of the other, but weakness has, for it seeks support 
and does not confront its partner with anything that might force them into an inferior position and even humiliate them. That's wonderful. So those parts of ourselves that are dark and difficult and troubled, angry, ferocious even, are looking for recognition and we are looking to build a relationship with them. He says, wherever a human relationship is to be established. And I would also say, wherever a relationship within yourself needs to be established, with some part of yourself, then it's what is weak and helpless and in need of support. Because those orphaned parts of us that, that have got lost, like our anxious self or our angry self, they are weak, actually, and need support. But also, <laughs> like paradoxically, they're very powerful when they're ignored. And they have denuded us of some of the power we need in our conscious life. And we need to find that. My anxiety has a lot of power. And the power it has for good is released by kindness self-compassion, gentleness to myself. The final piece I want to read is really a hymn to that kind of self-compassion. The poem is called Blossom, and it's entirely wrong for this time of year, really, as all the leaves are dropping from the trees, but it's a yearning for next spring. In Sheffield, on some of our streets, there are very well-established cherry trees, and thankfully they were saved by the Sheffield Trees Action Group from being cut down. Um, and in spring they are laden with pink and white blossom. And they're beautiful. And every year I always thought to myself, I should actually stop when I'm driving down one of these streets and walk down it and really feel what this moment is like in my body and in my emotions. And so the poem is an evocation of that desire to walk down the street. Blossom. As you drive past the hanging blossom of the cherry tree, you are moving too fast. Their pale luminescence and unnoticed glory, a promise year by year you fail to keep. But one day soon you will stop, get out of the car, an amble down the aisle of spring. There you will feel the tidal pull of all that growth, the vernal current of possibility. It will be time to call an end to speed and the unspoken grimness of hurry. What will the blossom say as it falls kindly on your upturned face? You are my witness, your presence a sign that falling is never wasted. Look, the strewn confetti of a richer life is all around you. All you have to do is trust its kindness to bring you home. Then you will see there is no other life for you hidden in someone else's wake. Only this marriage to everything you meet on the roughened track covered in blossom. 
only to welcome yourself as a guest at these unexpected nuptials of self-compassion. Only this spring, your own spring, blossoming open before your astonished face. That's what happens when you pay attention to kindness. You find the strewn confetti of a richer life all around you and you trust its kindness to bring you home. And the blossom says to you, you are my witness, your presence a sign that falling is never wasted. All the stuff that falls into your shadow is not wasted, but is waiting for you to walk down this aisle of spring and to befriend it and be kind to it and extend that kindness to yourself. Then you will see there is no other life for you hidden in someone else's wake. Only this marriage to everything you meet on the roughened track covered in blossom. Only to welcome yourself as a guest at these unexpected nuptials of self-compassion. Only this spring, your own spring, blossoming open before your astonished face. Apologies that this podcast has been longer than normal. These realities of the shadow and kindness merited a bit longer a meditation on them. I hope somehow that in these words you hear something that resonates and allows you to find both that which you have relegated and has fallen into the shadow and a way of befriending and offering compassion and kindness to that part of yourself that creates these nuptials of spring. As ever, go well. I am the Anxious Poet and this has been the Anxious Poets podcast. See you next time. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets podcast.